if you like the idea that consciousness emerges from complexity, which is the idea in complexity theory now, rather than thinking of these as eight types of, eight types of consciousness, you could almost call them eight types of things that wish they were consciousness that don't become consciousness until they recognize that they're part of a whole, a complex whole. And that you let the complexity illuminate not only the points of the eight points of light themselves, but also how they are interdependent, just as Buddhism says, you know, they're interdependent. That consciousness is not consciousness if it think if it thinks its thing is the only game in town. Hello folks, welcome to The Sacred Speaks. This is John Price, and today I'm going to be talking to Dr. John Beebe about psychological types. I read his book, Energies and Patterns in Psychological Type, The Reservoir of Consciousness, released this year on Rutledge, I think. And um, it's a great book. I'm, I thoroughly enjoyed it. 2017, last year. Uh, so today, I want to talk a little bit of music, give you some background on John, and then uh, set things up a little bit. So the first things first, the music you're hearing, the first song, and then I'll play the full songs from a band called Chemistry Set out of Dallas, Texas, and a wonderful band. I don't know that you can find them anywhere now. They released a couple records um, back in the early 2000s and uh, and no more. So it's, uh, it's a good... It's a great pleasure. Steve Duncan, the lead singer of that group, played on my album. And the last song that I'll play on this episode is called Fall. So enjoy that. Uh, so John Beebe is a Jungian analyst in private practice at San in San Francisco, a former president of the C.G. Jung Institute of San Francisco. He's a prolific author and editor and has spoken on analytical psychology all over the world. He got his... Um, he got a degree from Harvard College and the University of Chicago Medical School. And he, he talks about something, I, I just have to note that I think it's so amazing. He talks about how the, the forthcoming release on Rutledge of Jung's collected works on psychological type, he will be writing the intro for this, uh, this new edition. And just if you can imagine that your particular arena is psychological type and Jungian theory, and you are honored with the ability to write the intro. That must be one of the greatest of honors. So congratulations, John, for, uh, for that. Uh, I want to read a, a little bit to set things up for psychological type, in particular Jung's type. Um, um, it was adapted later on and popularized into the Myers-Briggs, but Jungian theory, it's a little different. So it, one of the things John does on pages four and five of his book is he talks about the eight types of awareness capable of constituting a psychological and individual's conscious psychology. This is quoting from him. Um, he says, I'll offer the word in everyday language and that I believe gets best at the heart of what that process is engaging it is engaged in accomplishing. There's introverted feeling, which is involved in appraising. Introverted thinking, involved in defining. Introverted intuition, in knowing. Introverted sensation, verifying. Extroverted feeling, affirming. Extroverted thinking, planning. Extroverted intuition, envisioning. And extroverted sensation, experiencing. And if, you, uh, if you're sitting down, write that down. So it, on the next page, he says the first three words that I'll read in a second 
as we read a cross for each of the eight mental processes can be thought of as what the process looks like on the surface to another person seeing someone for the first time using that process, what we might call its persona level. The second central word captures the heart of the process, the one that is embraced by the ego as its chief concern. The third word embodies what the process becomes at its most evolved level when it is working in sympathetic harmony with what Jung calls the self. One might call this the goal of the process. Okay, so here are those three words. For extroverted sensation, it is engaging, experiencing, enjoying. Introverted sensation, implementing, verifying, accounting. Extroverted intuition, entertaining, envisioning, enabling. Introverted intuition, imagining, knowing, divining. Extroverted thinking, regulating, planning, enforcing. Introverted thinking, naming, defining, understanding. Extroverted feeling, validating, affirming, relating. Introverted feeling, judging, appraising, and establishing the value. I won't repeat it again. You can just rewind and uh, go to that again because I know that was a lot. And if you'll go on to the Sacred Speaks on uh, Instagram, I will have a photograph of that image, these words you can check out there. But I think one thing as we get into the conversation is to understand a little bit about where John's going here. It's a, uh, it's a pretty complex subject, and it is by no means even remotely as easy as, you know, I am a, uh, my, my type, my Myers types is an ENFP. And, uh, and all, all that basically means is I have a starting point, and then I got to dive in deep. And, and oftentimes we kind of use it as a bumper sticker, I am a this. And it, it, it really helps the individual who knows that go deeper into understanding themselves. And, of course, for a psychotherapist, it helps kind of charting the path a little bit. And, uh, and certainly being able to attend to um, the, the consciousnesses and personalities that show up in dreams and images and uh, waking visions. Um, so, for this podcast, you can le- learn more about uh, about John, about every participant. Go to thesacredspeaks.com. Uh, and the music, the theme music for the podcast is Modern Nations. Get them at modernnationsmusic.com. And other than that, I think that's it. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I enjoyed speaking with John. Thanks a lot, John. I'm grateful for your time. And um, if you also go to wholenessretreat.com, I'll be leading a retreat in, uh, in January, January 17th through the 20th. So if you're available or around the Texas coast, we'll be heading out and talking about um, Eastern philosophy and, uh, and Jungian psychology and how to apply those in daily living. Thanks for listening. We'll leave it there. Thank you for arranging the time. This is, uh, this is really generous of you. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. As you said in our email, if this is kind of fun to be able to bat stuff back and forth. And, um, and I'm, I'm really curious I, I, about kind of not only the evolution of your thinking regarding type, because after, after we did that class together years ago, I always thought, man, I, I got to know more about this. And, and then this new book of yours, I, I saw, I forget where I first saw it. I immediately ordered it. That means I have become the same person I always projected onto. Every author book I liked, I always wanted to call them up and have a conversation yeah. with them. Well, that's I, I finished their book, you know. The idea of being able to read a book with the intention of, with it in mind, to be able to talk to the author afterwards, <laughs> it's about as good as it gets. It's really true that many authors are sort of on thrones and we don't feel we can ever approach them. And when we do, we're disappointed in a certain way because 
it's but somehow I don't think I write in such a way. I hope I don't write in such a way that people feel they can't talk to me, and that's yeah. that's that's what I hope it becomes the dialogue, which is what I like the best. Good. So do I. So that's what we're here to do today, and um, I'm just extending gratitude your way, man. Thank you. You're very welcome. So my first, um, when I was thinking about this may be because I, I also teach, but I'm interested when you head into a lecture on typology, I'm curious how you, how you envision working with the material. And what I mean by that is, what do people need the most when they start to understand typology? Because it is such a confusing um, subject matter that, that, from my opinion, around every corner, there's a series of more corners. And, you know, because you go from the type issue into the complex issue into the, I don't know, it seems like a deep end of the pool. So I'm wondering if you were doing like an introductory class, what have you learned that people need the most when it comes to understanding type? Well, for starters, I think of it as a wheel. And I think Jung gave us a kind of wheel because he loved the mandala image, he loved the circular image. And if you see the eight function attitudes as sort of points on a wheel, uh, so that you have at least eight sectors uh, in any personality, which would be the four functions, but each in their, either their introverted or extroverted aspect. When I go into a lecture, I have in mind eight function attitudes. So I have that eight idea. And the question is, where am I gonna start to spin the wheel or where am I gonna start to turn the wheel? <laughs> and so I would, would have to start with one of the function attitudes. And then even if I don't say I'm doing so, I'm doing so just because the very act of starting sets me off in one sector or of the wheel because I have to communicate at all. We have to use some form of consciousness. And so I'm still talking to an unknown audience that I, or people that I barely know. And of course I have a dominant function attitude of extroverted in, uh, intuition but that very function begins to anticipate maybe even envision or tele telepathically pick up on the uh, room I'm talking to and so somehow I fall into one of the places and I start there so I might start with extroverted feeling, or I might start with introverted thinking in my style of address. And then, then I have to kind of explain what I'm talking about, but I'm not sure how I'm going to do it. So sometimes I explain from a rational point of view, which means one of the rational function attitudes, meaning the two kinds of thinking and the two kinds of feeling, or I come from one of the irrational function attitudes, and I'm using Jung's term, irrational, which could be watered down just to be non-rational, but I rather like the craziness of them, so I prefer to say irrational. Uh, sensation or intuition, those are the two uh, irrational functions, and if you realize that each has an extroverted and an introverted form, then you're going to have four irrational function attitudes. So I've got to choose one of them to start with. So who knows which one I'm going to start with? I actually never know how I'm going to start. But I do know that as a wheel, no matter where I start, I'll, sooner or later I'll cover everything. And so for me, it's not a series of corners, you see. Mm -hmm. So I don't really ever have to turn a corner. I'm just turning around on a wheel and somehow the wheel, like the wheel of Dharma and Buddhism or you know, somewhat of Jung's mandalas, the nice thing about it is it sort of uh, contains everything and it's a little bit like the globe. I mean, you could circumambulate it two ways. You could go around uh, horizontally or you could go around what we think of as vertically, but 
does it really matter whether you start at the North Pole and, and work your way around the South Pole and back? Or does it matter if you start uh, at the Pacific Ocean and cross the United States and then go across the Atlantic Ocean and so forth and so on? In other words, sooner or later, you're going to go around the world anyway. You're going to go out and you just have to choose where you start. And it chooses me. I don't choose it. And I've often made up my mind <coughs> not to come into most lectures with a firm plan. I guess that says I'm an irrational type, but I like to step in. And like Heraclitus, you never step in the same river twice. So even I, people say, I, I, I once counted up that I've given, they think, well, I think 300 type lectures and workshops over a period of time. I'm, I think there may have been more, but those are the ones one could identify. And everybody who's ever been to my lectures, and there's some who've been to quite a few of them, say I've never given the same lecture twice. It can be, um, I, you and I are, uh, it was nice reading your book because you and I share the same typology. I think, although as I say that, you, we differ, I think. Did you, did, do you have a dominant thinking type? I have a dominant extroverted intuition and an auxiliary introverted thinking. That's and what is that gives you this so-called ENTP type, if you go by Myers-Briggs. Right. Because they, they type uh, the leading extroverted function, whether it's dominant or auxiliary, uh, and they make sure that, that if that leading extroverted function is your dominant function, then, then that E refers to your dominant function. But if it happened to be your auxiliary, it would refer to your auxiliary function. So I could, I could look very much like an INTP, except that they're an introvert and I'm an extrovert, and I start with intuition and auxiliary use thinking, and they would start with thinking and auxiliary use intuition. So what do you think your dominant function attitude well, is? That's where we differ. I am an ENFP by the Myers-Briggs. That's what I would have said it, intuitively, uh, that you have more feeling and more introverted feeling. So where I take care of people with introverted thinking, you might take care of people with introverted feeling. There we have a, a piece of what I do that might be worth talking about right at the outset. It was Isabel Briggs Myers who really emphasized the uh, importance of the auxiliary function in addition to the dominant function. Jung had certainly introduced the term auxiliary function in his book, uh, psychological types. But she picked up on something he said in only one sentence. You can always find one sentence in Jung that he will contradict everywhere else. But nevertheless, she found this one sentence. And she really built a tent on it. Uh, the one sentence is the auxiliary function is different in every respect from the dominant function. So that was the key to, for me, to the beginning of my own study of typology, because it all made sense that there could be four functions of consciousness, but I could not decide whether I was extroverted or introverted. And my friends couldn't help because I had some friends who said I was the only true introvert they knew, yet I and my analysts were pretty convinced I was extroverted. What did that mean? Well, the answer was that when I was dealing with my own self-experience in analysis and talking about how I personally experienced the world, um, I was constantly talking about a whole set of extroverted connections to all kinds of things. But from earliest childhood, for various reasons, including the fact that I had a rather uh, neurasthenic uh, uh, mother who needed a lot of caretaking uh, and holding, I was a caretaker, as so many therapists are from yeah. earliest childhood. And so I developed my caretaking function when dealing with other people almost to a fault. So some people I was taking care of who really need taking care of, and they probably resented it. But because my mother was a rather irrational, introverted, intuitive woman with extroverted feeling, I, it was my role to often explain things to her and, and may help her make sense of them. And when I helped her, helped her enough, um, 
then she would look at me and say, well, you're just a child and that would be the end of my having that role. But for the, for the first few, for the first period of time, I would be the one that sort of kept her from going over the brink. So I was someone who really got good at, at, at caretaking and holding. And I am the one who discovered that we use the auxiliary function to take care of other people. And in my case, that took the form of explaining things. Now today that would be called mansplaining. It would probably be a very bad idea to, to do it too often, but introverted thinking loves to define um, uh, a situation. And I could always remember my mother calming down saying to me, I see, you know, I'd say something and then she said, oh, I see. And somehow that was how our introverted intuition could accept my introverted thinking. I mean, the point was she really needed to be in therapy five times a week and getting an interpretation an hour. But unfortunately, she had this child. And so this child became a rather brilliant introverted thinking interpreter uh, of, of my mother's rather chaotic experience. And so as a consequence, I was caretaking her, but I also, through that experience, learned that we use the auxiliary function, all of us, to take care of others. So if you look very closely, you will find that when you're dealing with other people, you'll often hold and take care of them using your introverted feeling. For instance, when you want to tell people that they're doing okay, you'll say, uh, probably something like, well, I really feel great about that, or that feels really good to me. And you're, so you're saying it feels good to you, but you're also holding them and saying so. So that's a caretaking use of an introverted function. Now, for some people, I'm sure it's like a, a, a check that uh, bounces because in their bank, the only way to take care of other people is going to be some extroverted way. And if, 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 if you saying how it feels to you would not feel caretaking to someone who's really going to insist on you using extroverted feeling and just focusing on how it feels to them. And so you say to them, boy, that feels good to me. And, and they'll hear some horrible remark back like, well, I'm glad it feels good to you, but I'm sitting here and you just ignored me. And of course, you must feel very hurt when that happens because of course you said it as a holding and caretaking. So I have the same problem. Sometimes I'll explain something to someone and they'll say, well, that's an interesting perspective or that's a nice theory. And these are the people who don't, who don't experience my introverted thinking as caretaking or holding them at all. You know what they're looking for? They're looking for extroverted thinking. They want a clear, organized explanation of what it's about. And they want to have that offered to them and they want to learn it by rote if necessary. And they want to then use it after that. And they're going to be disappointed with me the way you might be disappointing people who expect caretaking with feeling to be extroverted feeling. So, you always have the problem of how you instinctively take care of other people and may have worked with someone like my mother and may have worked for all I know with your father or your mother. That may have felt, or, or your children, it may work fine for some people close to you, but other people may not experience your caretaker as caretaking at all. In fact, they may resent it and they may, uh, consider that you're either treating them like kids or infantilizing them or that you're narcissistic, that you're just talking to me. I remember one, when I was first teaching in one city that I went to, somebody, I always dread, I think it's dreadful to do any kind of uh, note feedback right after a lecture anyway, but a lot of places feel that you immediately have people rate this thing for continuing education. <laughs> Those evaluations, I never want to read them. They're very upsetting. But uh, one more thing. I hate being lectured to, says this, I think, woman. I may be wrong. I may be sexist, but I'm pretty sure it was a woman. And somehow the tone, I hate being lectured to. And um, he spent hours talking to us in his own service. And she had no idea that what I was trying to do was give them a set of thoughts that I had winnowed in order to see through the labyrinthine thicket of psychological types so they really have something to hold on to. Had I done it with extroverted thinking, 
and done it in a more conventional way with group discussion and workshop processing. If I had, I, so I was more or less, yes, I, writing, you might say, the rough draft of what eventually became the book you read. You could yeah. say it that way. And some people kept those, the tapes of those lectures and played them for years. But for that person, it was the affront of all time. And uh, it was quite, a, quite a interesting. And of course, I've had to learn in giving my lectures. So then I go back to what do I do when I give a lecture? Anticipate that there are going to be many people who are not going to be like my mother, who would sometimes get on her knees and say, you saved me, you know, because I would come up with something that made sense to her that enabled her to go forward. They wouldn't feel that way at all. They'd feel like I treated them. Uh, talked down to them or whatever, or hadn't talked to them. So I have to go in not only coming from what I feel like doing that day and what has been passing through my mind to do, but also able to keep turning the wheels so that what I'm doing is going to reach all the people in the room and everybody sees that they are in, in what I'm offering and not just those that happen to share my my uh, two moving functions. And so uh, the more I got fluent with my own understanding of the eight function attitudes and the more I saw how I used them and how that pleased some people and upset other people, the more skill I got at being able to kind of, it's a little bit like a winding road. You have to be able to turn the wheel and turn the wheel and turn the wheel and turn the wheel again and do very at a great deal. And uh, so when I lecture, I just go into almost a mediumistic state and I just start talking and I try to, and I sort of read the audience and I try to figure out how to give everybody something. And uh, so I've worked in a lot of different things and a lot of different ways to talking that seemed to me if I'm succeeding to get to get to everybody uh, so the truth is I never know where I'm going to start because I never know who I'm going to be talking to and I don't know how they're going to be receiving it so I keep talking about the same material from different angles and sometimes I'll use functions that are not at all my own to get there. I also use film a lot because I, I find the extroverted sensation experience compensates for my rather cerebral, uh, non-sensate way. And I also find from an introverted sensation point of view, there's a lot of, of the text the texts of films are very carefully cut and edited by the great filmmakers. And so the, usually it's very clearly delineated what they're trying to specify emotionally. And so you have both the pleasure of following a story and watching a picture, which is sort of extroverted sensation, but you also have the introverted sensation specificity of the dialogue and the images and the uh, facial expressions of the actors. And then, of course, you have so much feeling, both extroverted feeling and introverted feeling, because film is both extroverted feeling where you identify as, as far as film watching is extroverted feeling, identifying with people on the screen. But introverted feeling is contemplating what you're seeing. And so the combination of the two kinds of sensation and two kinds of feeling to go a long way toward compensating for my dominantly introverted uh, uh, thinking and my dominantly extroverted intuition, which are sometimes nebulous to people because they can't get from my intuition and my thinking what I'm really talking about and how to feel about it, but the film material enables them. And then I can, then when I can explain what's in the film, which I've trained myself to do, then they're really grateful because many people can only experience film through sensation and feeling. And when someone can actually come along and, and, and define what they just saw and get intuitive meanings out of it, and they are grounded in what they just experienced, 
then from their own base, they can stretch to their other functions. So I found that to be incredibly helpful. And so I use it all the time in illustrating specific moments of typology that reveal in films how the different uh, function attitudes operate. And that really works. That really gets the real. You hit on it. I, I lead a retreat a couple of times a year and I, I do one film one evening and incorporate it into the lectures. So this, um, this hits on something I, I had, I was fantasizing about you and I getting into. I'm curious if you've got any films you've been working over lately that we could kind of put some skin on that bone for people that are listening. Yes, I'm watching quite a lot of uh, the, the things that are on television now because mm -hmm. we are in this golden age of television and we keep getting one extraordinary uh, drama series after another. and. Uh, so I keep I, so there's there's certainly the, that I, I keep watching very interesting things. This just past month, for instance, uh, I watched um, uh, the British uh, series Bodyguard, mm -hmm. which is a tremendously interesting uh, series uh, about. Uh, a world in which no one can trust anyone else. Uh, it's, it, the conceit is a young man is uh, uh, a veteran of one of the wars, perhaps Iraq, perhaps Afghanistan, and uh, he is suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. He uh, 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 has been a British soldier, and now he's uh, uh, working in an anti-terrorism unit uh, and uh, uh, he gets the, he's he does so well at managing a particular situation of, of getting a bomber to give up uh, her uh, her uh, detonation vest that uh, uh, they make him the uh, bodyguard of the home secretary of, uh, of England, who is a woman. And so he gets involved in a very complicated political situation in which there's various assassination attempts on this woman's life. And he is really drawn to try to protect her. He has certain information about her that he doesn't share, and she has certain information about him that he doesn't share, and then it becomes a question of whether they can trust each other, and then all mm. these different warring parties, the police are arguing with the people in security, and everyone has a political subtext and an organizational subtext, and after a while you get this sense of our present-day world in which no one can trust anyone else, and so you watch all these different people, and of course there is plenty of examples of the typology of suspicion. We are all suspicious of each other these days. We're just suspicious of each other in different ways. So there's no one typology that correlates with suspicion. Rather, every type is somewhat suspicious of every other type. And, and you watching it can never decide who to trust. And of course, it becomes a procedural where someone is killed and you have to decide uh, uh, who orchestrated the killing, who arranged it, who was who is responsible, who actually did it. And you become like the people in the in the story. You just no one knows, you never know who to trust. But as you contemplate all these people, you're also contemplating different types of consciousness and watching different types of suspicion. So it's a marvelous typology of suspicion. It's really quite wonderful. And, and, it's, and you can apply the type theory to analyzing that. I haven't done it thoroughly. I've only watched the series once, but if I wanted to take it to an audience and we did it for a week, we could have a field day of just using <laughs> episodes of that particular uh, miniseries from BBC England that's on uh, one of the, uh, uh, I think it's on Netflix right now. And so it's a very easy one to watch and very easy one to, to work with. Or you could get assign that to an audience and then just have a series of lectures where you discussed all the characters, every single one of them, and tried to work out their typology. And you'd find that to be very interesting. Well, and I think that brings up a really good point. I haven't seen it yet, but now, of course, I will. <laughs> it's a good endorsement. Yes. Um, what it does 
bring up though is to be clear when we look at videos or films or television like that we're seeing both kind of specific typologies but i think and i think the thing that really blows my mind that you wrote about a lot in the book is the multiplicity of selves and the it's so to for anybody listening it it's not as if there are a bunch of people represented there i mean that that's certainly happening and also what's happening is a display of the interior of an individual and the kind of conflicts that are created intrapsychically that that oftentimes are lived out elsewhere and that to me is something that i wanted to jump into a bit and get kind of understand a bit better about what you're meaning when you're talking about multiplicity of selves and and conflict in particular how those how those conflicts happen both intrapsychically and interpersonally let's start with this use of film and just take something that's very important of course i chose film because it's a little like dream a little like dream but it's not really like dream it's more like an active imagination to use a technical term of jung's because it's a kind of a constructed waking dream in which some consciousness usually the directors is engaging with a story that's been presented but also bringing out its meanings at the same time so it's a kind of dialogue dream is film is like a dialogue between conscious or presented elements and the consciousness of an artist shaping them to make meaning so that that and then there's, there's the third consciousness of the of the people watching it we're also co-creating what's being created so you've got sort of three texts going on they presented story which may have been written by someone director or not often a screenwriter is different and maybe the story also draws upon formulas that have existed for a long time so you sort of have already archetypal elements that are then becoming a new creative story and then you have that being told by a director who taking the story imagines it and gets actors to act it out and then then cuts and edits their things so they, they that tells a certain take on the story that is itself a story and then you have the story being put together in the mind of the person watching so you have this complicated uh, series of interactions between uh, things and what seems to hold it all together is the story is itself so polysemic so filled with multiple possibilities of meaning like obviously everyone has a different theory of hamlet for instance a notoriously polysemic story a poly and there you have six major characters someone once said how is one theater critic in london who was uh, associated with the jungian analyst a friend of mine who had been a a reviewer for uh, years for one of the english papers and he i said to him what well, what is your what is the best place and no question hamlet because where else do you have six major characters that good you know and it's true so you really do and so you already so a story will have both the thrill of the story like the procedural who killed uh, hamlet's father um and hamlet's father ghost having telling hamlet what it was and hamlet having trying to decide whether he can believe that story and then trying to figure out what's happening but then you have this the characters in the story each orchestrating their own stories his mother and polonius and uh, ophelia and claudius and hamlet himself it really gets it really becomes quite a quite a quite an event um uh, and then you have the advisor of polonius as i said the father of philias uh, if you add them up you can find six that you would hold on to and many more actually on that are fascinating but but the six are the key to that particular thing and you could sort of see the whole story from each point of view i mean you could 
from the standpoint of Gertrude, it means one thing. From the standpoint of Claudius, it means another. From the standpoint of Ophelia, who goes mad and commits suicide, it means something else entirely. From the standpoint of Hamlet, it means something. From the standpoint of Polonius, the father, Laertes, the brother of Ophelia, uh, uh, and you. You know, you can read that as the mo Hamlet is the most sensitive person, and you'd be very sympathetic to him, or you can say to him, God, what an impossible person. Uh, bring him into the story, and they're going to have uh, nothing but, uh, well, what, as Judy Garland sang it once uh, in Death's Entertainment, or a ghost in the prince meet, and everyone ends up mincemeat. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it, 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 there's a way in which you can think of Hamlet as just the impossible child of all time. That, what a mess he leaves behind. And so you can see it many, many ways. I remember a friend of mine was absolutely shocked that I didn't like Hamlet when I first read it. But, but so yes, all this is very much like um, our minds. We can hear our own life stories many times. And we probably, if we go to therapy long enough, we tell them many times from many points of view. And from one point of view, we're the victim. From another point of view, we're quite the perpetrators of our own uh, uh, misfortunes. And, if, if, and many of us, as we get older, keep reliving conversations we've had 50 years ago. And boy, you finally understand what someone was trying to say to you then. And you feel like such an idiot for the way you handled it then. And what you said then, it's really quite interesting. And we, so we all just, so the point is we are filled with different characters, each of them seeing it from that angle. And the interesting thing is that all those characters are these types of consciousness that Jung describes, not MBI types. And that's where I'm going with film. If, not MBTI types. MBTI types are types of people, and then they're often called personality types because it's turned into types of personality. And they all have these license plates, ENTP, INTJ, ISTP, there's 16 of them. There's 16 types of personality. Well, that's true if you think personality is what your dominant function and your auxiliary function is. Uh, and you put them together, and, you, and they're they're used by a person like their head and their right hand, or if you're left-handed, your head and your left hand. But even, there, even that with that, there's a lot more to us than our head and our right hand. We also have two feet, and we have a middle, and we have a heart, and we have kidneys. You know, we have a lot of different parts to us. So what I guess I would say is that um, try to remember that when you're looking at a film, you are not looking at a documentary. If you're looking at a fiction film, you're looking at an acted out fantasy and it's only, it's a, it, it's, we see them on, on our home televisions on flat screens. This is a graphic art. This is, it has the illusion of depth, but it usually isn't unless you maybe have a three-definition television, which a few people have now. You may have high definition, but you don't really have depth. It's just flat. And usually you're not seeing whole people. You're seeing part personalities, each one of which is a very compelling point of view. And that is turned into a character. That's not how people are. People are all of those personalities. So Shakespeare must have had all of those characters inside himself, you know, to be able to put them out as a drama. But we see that so that when I'm looking at a film or a, to, for the purposes of analysis, it's usually the case that the, the character on the screen only represents one of Jung's original eight types of consciousness, because he wasn't dealing with types of people. He was dealing with types of consciousness within people. And we all have, and he found, he was able to find eight discrete types of consciousness that each of us has within us but in very different orders. Our typology, what we call our, so when I speak of my typology or I speak of your typology, I'm thinking of the fact that our, we have many of the same functions in common. In fact, if we look closely enough, each and every one of us has all of them, but in a very different order. So in your case, the order is extroverted uh, intuition. That's the same place where I start but you immediately have a different second a introverted feeling and I have a introverted thinking. So if we were doing a movie, my caretaking character might be a, a, 
an academic professor of English who gives, uh, you know, interprets uh, literature on a, for a living. And he might be uh, the person who's charged with uh, the sick wife at home and making sure that nothing happens to make her sicker. And that would be the story, you see. And he'd be the hero, but he'd be a very unusual hero. And it'd be fun to get a certain kind of actor to play him, you know, who could play an introverted thinking hero. Most heroes in movies are, you know, an extroverted, say, action hero. But here would be an introverted thinking intellectual hero. It would be a kick for a change for some people to see. It would probably make become an independent film. It probably wouldn't be a mainstream film, but it would it would work and it would be enjoyable. But that but he just he'd be the hero and she'd be the wounded person that he's taking care of, you know, and that kind of thing. And maybe maybe he would turn out to be a father figure rather than a hero figure, for instance. And maybe he's using father, you know, who knows what it would be. But the point is, there are a lot of possibilities both for the archetype carrying his introverted thinking and his own use of the introverted thinking. But everybody seeing him encoded as an academic professor would be looking at his thinking and watching how it operates. And you could, under the right circumstances, uh, that person could become as interesting as uh, Sherlock Holmes is interesting. You know, uh, he, he could become an interesting character, an introverted thinker who solves every, everything by thinking it through. What does thinking it through mean? Would you, it, it's hard when people come to typology, they, they almost have a prescriptive way of engaging it. Like, oh, you need to do this then. H how do you, because I, I know when you're going with the whole entire license plate typology, people just kind of type themselves as this concrete reality, and that's who I am in the world, and you need to understand how I'm in the world. But as as anybody who does any investigation into typology quickly learns, it is incredibly more complex than that. Very complex. And in fact, you'll know, in, created, he says, and anyone who really wants to understand Jung should get hold of his book, Psychological Types, and read the Argentine edition, editions forward, which is included in the current editions of Psychological Types, the one in the collected works. And I'm very thrilled to say, I mean, really proud to say, if I may commit the sin of pride, um, that Routledge has produced a classics edition that has a forward by me, plus that are, after that Argentine forward is a forward by me uh, to this book. And it's the proudest thing I've ever had that I would be chosen to do that. And I would actually be the person that people can read. Wow. Yeah. So that is a wow. I agree. Thank you for taking that in and imagining how that must feel. It feels great. I'm sure it feels amazing. <laughs> That's right. So what I'm getting at is he says in the Argentine edition that he didn't create this as a parlor game to try type people. He created it as a way to help the working psychotherapist sort through the welter of empirical material that appears in the course of a therapeutic analysis. In other words, people say all kinds of things to their therapists, especially in long-term psychotherapy. And to make sense of all the characters in their dreams, all the feeling states that people go through, all the changes people go through, and to see that these are different types of consciousness in conflict within them, trying themselves out in relations to others, reacting to the impact of other people, and that you need to be able to sort out in some way what are the regularities there? And it does turn out that many of our problems turn out to be extroverted feeling problems or introverted thinking problems. In other words, problems of relationship or problems of understanding, or there might be just plain problems and just basic orientation to what actually is happening, extroverted sensation, or the introverted intuitive ability to divine the meaning of the situation. In a, in, a, in a sort of existential sense of the meaning, or even a religious sense of the meaning. Or it's 
more a problem of planning and scheduling, in which case it's an extroverted thinking problem. Well, now how do I, how do I organize this? And, uh, uh, or it's a, an extroverted feeling problem of, of, as I say, how do you relate to it? Or, or an introverted feeling problem. How do I really feel about that? What is the value of this? And does this make any sense in value level to me at all? Does it accord with my values? Uh, which is something that a lot of people worry about a great deal. Or an introverted sensation problem. Can the inside of my body really take this? Everything is fine, except that I find myself uh, with either a headache or a stomachache uh, all day long in this particular relationship I'm in. And so what, what is that inside of my body telling me? So these... Uh, this, a, a long-term therapy is a chance to really work out on the jungle gym of all your consciousnesses, you know. You really <laughs> have, to, you have to do something with that and get fluent. Get fluent with your, get on to yourself because you, we've, these, these consciousnesses are constantly discharging, as you say, through complexes. So at the, at, at the types of always become complexes and the complexes all have psychological types and the archetypes get into it so you know suddenly you're just having to be the hero every time or you're having to be the mother every time or you've got to be the bad boy trickster or you've got to be just the person who undermines everything or you've got to be the uh, naysayer and oppose. In other words, we have all these different roles we play, yeah. and we keep. And there we are again. We, I can say, you know, I went to, I went to two parties in a row this week because of Christmas. The first party, I was the life of the party, the warmest, most, those charming, affirming, smiling people were magnetized to this marvelous extroverted feeling. The next morning, I was so. The next morning, I went to the next thing that I had to do. Was one was an evening party, one was a midday, you know, late brunch party, and there I was, this um, introverted feeling type, making snarky remarks to. And no matter what I came out of my mouth, it made someone feel bad. It was just unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, I wore the same clothes because I thought it would be easier. And I even saw some of the same people, but nobody <laughs> saw the same person. And it was because I was just worn out or else I'd gone too far. And there was the law of opposites and I had to be the other person. And so if I couldn't, I could not stop bringing up the negative. It was just unbelievable. Well, it gets, unbelievable. It gets to a good good point. And I, I would like to spend our, our chunk, last chunk on this which when you're talking about people coming into therapy and analysis, I, I noticed two things. You know, the first is that somebody comes in and they're completely hacked off about somebody that cut them off in traffic and they're pissed off about it and they're kind of venting and then going, oh, I'm sorry about that. And I'll say, whoa, 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 hang on. I want to know more about that. Tell me about that. So along that theme, I'm curious how you work from a typological lens with the people that piss us off the most. So these repeating motifs in people's lives about where, they, where they're the most conflicted and they're the most, like they hate the other person, they dislike the, I don't know what it is about that well, other, but I just can't say it. The way stay. I say it is that I always say, you know, uh, this is how you, this is how you know what, what, what your shadow functions are because you, the idea is you have four functions that are more or less in your consciousness, whether or not they're developed or not, you're aware of them, working on them, and trying to refine them and make them work for you. Then you have four function attitudes that are in shadow. And the way the shadow is created is that if you use a function in an introverted way, the its extroverted version goes in into shadow. So if I, as I, my extroverted feeling was so in, involved in the first party that I had built up a big introverted feeling shadow that went to the second party. And, and uh, that was the problem. So that you, you, you always, so the shadow, 
So the minute you're one, you're not the other. And when I was in my introverted feeling shadow, I, I kept striking out when I tried to get back to the extroverted feeling that I'd had the night before. But the better part of that was that the first party was given by a more extroverted feeling person, and the second part was given by a more introverted feeling person. So actually, my introverted feeling was welcome at, at the second party, and the extroverted feeling would probably wouldn't have been as welcome. So in a certain way, I didn't fully blow it. I was also aligning, but there was also the thing going on in me. Now, um, I once tried to explain this when I was in Korea. There's a wonderful group of people studying psych psychological types in Korea. And when I tried to explain the four functions of consciousness, they knew as much as most analysts know about um, many things about the complexes and the types and so forth. So there was no problem talking about the conscious four functions. And they were just very there. But when I began to talk about the um, shadow, they didn't know what I was talking about. You have to know the Koreans are among the most, the South Koreans, among the most generous people I've ever in the world been, been in touch with. They're so kind that if you go to a restaurant and you like something at the restaurant, they always give you a second helping free. I mean, it's that, it's in every restaurant, no matter how fine, it's just, and, when they had me staying, they didn't just want to pay my hotel bill. They would pay for my laundry or my hotel or my phone if I called home. I mean, they would, they, they, and their, their art is so beautiful, their museum. I, was in a, I never saw such a group of people. My father was a battalion commander in the, in, the, in the Korean War, and he said the Korean people were the best people he'd ever met in life, and I can see why he felt that way. So, but I was trying to explain the shadow to them. And I said, well, I can sort of, and I, said, I can sort of see why you're not getting this. I said, uh, because in a way I've been here and you have everything you need here. You're complete. And so I can see this. But if I really think about it, I, I, I think I know where the shadow is. It's in North Korea. And they, the house broke down. They just, they, it was just hilarious. It was just hilarious because, of course, everyone knows North Korea is just exactly the opposite. Right. So, and then they understood. And then they got it. So the truth is, the easiest way to find out what your shadow is and, and to understand it typologically is name the people you don't like and you'll see those are your shadow functions writ large in another person. That's, there are people who use the other thing. And so if you watch what you hate, one of my own analysts said, watch what you hate, it's pure gold. If you watch what you hate, you will learn where your shadow is. And it's the best way because we normally, the normal way to handle the shadow is in projection. We don't handle the shadow. We don't recognize it as part of ourselves. We see it outside ourselves. And only gradually does it become possible for us to, to realize, my God, why? I could be that too. I could be that. That could be me. Because you're so sure that it isn't you, and yet it is, it is you. So what's the value in doing that? It opens yourself up to so many more people. Every time I've worked on a shadow function, suddenly someone trusts me enough to call me up and come into therapy with me because they instinctively know that I can understand them. Now, how do they know that only that week did I finally figure out what that function was about? And then there is the pers living personification and I'm not demonizing them and I'm not trying to cure them. Wow, yeah. I see that in my practice, yeah. And it's amazing. And so a therapist, you know, the, the dream of a therapist is nothing human is alien to me. Well, that would mean you have to know all eight functions, except that who does? But, but pianists learn, you know, you know, to play all the notes on the piano. And so therapists, too, need to learn the dark keys and the light keys and the modulations. We just have to try. try. It isn't too much to ask therapists to learn eight functions of consciousness. Uh, people studying music go to solfege courses and they learn do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do and how to tell the difference between them. Why can't we do that? But you'd have so many therapists who think all of therapy is extroverted feeling or all of therapy is extroverted feeling or cognitive behavior.
behavioral, it's all extroverted thinking, just get your, just get your act together. Uh, or, you know, or it's really, um, it's really the body. Let's do, let's, let's forget about the head. It's all introverted sensation. Let's, let's get to, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so just about every therapist is specializing in one of the eight functions and treating the rest as if they're defenses against the real deal. I mean, come on, can we possibly embrace complexity here? Well, when, is, in, when the defense is really with a therapist. That's right, the defense is with the therapist, that's right. I mean, it's wonderful that people are so good at something, but it's also wonderful if they can suddenly realize there are many narratives going on at the same time and it behooves us to learn as many. This is for me the dream, that therapists would become so sensitive to complexity and that they would find a theory of complexity, of psychological complexity in CGO. And if you have the idea that consciousness emerges from complexity, which is the idea in complexity theory now, rather than thinking of these as eight types of, eight types of consciousness, you could almost call them eight types of things that wish they were consciousness that don't become consciousness until they recognize that they're part of a whole, a complex whole. And that you let the complexity illuminate not only the points of the eight points of light themselves, but also how they are interdependent, just as Buddhism says, you know, they're interdependent. That consciousness is not consciousness if it think if it thinks its thing is the only game in town. <laughs> That's gold, John. <laughs> All right, I gotta I be. Have oh, to stop there. We, it was wonderful to talk to you. I know you too, John. Uh, I I can't tell you how thankful I am, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, until next time, man, I'll uh, I'll send you a, th a, a thankful email. Good to speak across the thinking feeling border with our auxiliary functions. I certainly appreciate it. I can't tell you enough. Okay. Bye. Thank you. See you next time. Bye. I fall like a curtain. I fall like it's autumn. I fall like a clumsy young teenager desperately trying to win. I fall like a temple I fall cause it's simple I fall like the ash from a cigarette Caught in a death valley I fall like a comet I fall cause I need it I fall like a heavyweight boxer As if I had something to lose
left to bear. I lost my head in your vacant stare, shutting me out like a drunk from a bar. I wonder if I. It's easy. I fall 'cause it hurts me. 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 Hurts me.